0: Hi, I'm Bernard Leung, and you may know me as the executive who had wondered if I should ever invest in China tech stocks. And in my spare time, I want to understand whether the financials for the Chinese technology companies are sustainable. You're listening to Analyze Asia, the weekly podcast dedicated to business technology and media in Asia. And today I have James Hall, co-host of the China Tech Investor Podcast and also founder of Paul X. Welcome James, and it's great to have you for the first time on the podcast.
1: Hey, hey, Bernard, thank you very much. Thanks for having me.
0: Yeah, I probably should be the one who say thank you because you guys hosted me recently. <laughs> so where are you based in actually?
1: I'm based in Beijing. I've been in China working and living for, I guess this is my 12th year. So since 2007, yeah. Wow,
0: that's been a long time. So I want to start by... Of course, try to get to know you better. So can you talk about how did you start your career?
1: Well, if I can go back to college, I studied economics and before I graduated, I did an internship with a CDO hedge fund. I think they hired me because I was bothering them about the housing bubble. (laughs) So then I ended up getting a job offer from them, graduated in 2007. 2007 that summer things were already getting pretty hairy in the mortgage-backed security market They basically were like look we can't hire you. We're laying people off. So then I decided to Maybe go check out China and what originally was going to be about a two-month trip turned into 12 years funny how that happens so I started off in consulting and I managed to find some clients to pay me to teach myself financial modeling and accounting, and I helped them with some fundraising. And then I met a US-listed small hydro company, and I joined them, and I was with them for about close to five years. And there, I basically ran the financial model, did debt analysis, fp built a built internal reporting system in Excel, and kind of helped roll it out across all of our reporting segments. And then I went to the buy side, JIC Capital, which is a subsidiary of CIC. It's about four layers down. And I was there for about three years, and I was two years working in renewables, you know, finding, negotiating, structuring, acquiring and exiting renewable projects. And then one year working on M&A deals, you know, overseas M&A deals. Then I left in 2017 and kind of went back to my consulting roots a little bit, but then decided what I really want to do is manage money. I've been managing my own portfolio since college, a little bit before college. And kind of a little bit younger as well through my dad. Yeah, so then I started managing my own money and friends and family. And that's what Hall X is now, yeah. mm So
0: just before we get into asking you about your experience in China, maybe just to help my audience, I think CIC is a very well known private equity. Can you just elaborate on what they actually do? Because I think JIC Capital where you work in is actually a subsidiary of CIC and CIC is very influential in terms of the private equity space in China itself.
1: Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Basically above CIC is the Ministry of Finance. So it's an SOE. They're most famously known for sovereign wealth fund of china right and they have underneath them basically every single state-owned bank and then also all of the non-bank financial companies and so jic group which is above jic capital it was actually a spin-off from ccb china construction bank china construction bank went public they didn't want the non-bank financial institutions inside China Construction Bank. So they separated them. And yeah, there's a long history and, and it's pretty complicated. I mean, like the first time I went to the headquarters and I saw the actual org chart, it was fascinating to see, you know, finally kind of put it all into kind of an image. Yeah. You
0: know. Okay. So to just help everyone, CIC is the equivalent of something like Temasek Holdings, like the Singapore Sovereign Wealth Fund, and also SOE, which we always use state-owned enterprise so I want to ask you this because you have in the realm of investments with different funds and capital groups in China. What's your experience and from your perspective looking into China from a different culture?
1: Yeah, that's a, a really good question. I think, you know, for basically most of my time in China, I've been straddling the cultural line between the US and China. And that's not just US, I guess it's also like foreign investor community and China. And so I've spent a lot of time explaining business in China to international investors. That's required me in order to answer their questions to get pretty well versed in what's going on in each industry and the history of the industries and the companies and things like that. And I guess if you're going to just plop someone in that role, it's going to be really hard to explain things to each side because it doesn't really make sense to each other. So you have to kind of culturally translate things. And that's kind of what's difficult about it.
0: That's a very good point, actually. And you have actually stayed 12 years in China. And that probably start off your entire career journey. What are the interesting life lessons you can share with my audience?
1: Well, you know, if I could go back in time and had the opportunity to ask my current self, I probably wouldn't go to myself for career advice. <laughs> I've had kind of a bumpy roundabout career. But I would say on the personal side, I think the most important thing is you should keep learning. Ask questions and listen to the answers. Be open-minded. Be in person of integrity. Like make sure you're always doing something and or working on something and kind of have a bias for action is, is the way some other people have put it. And then also I think be vulnerable. There's some value in, you know, being kind of a real person. I think that's important. And then on the business side, I think one of the things I see people make mistakes with is, you know, for example, if I've had people ask me like, okay, how do you negotiate a higher salary? Right? The first idea a lot of people have is to, you know, make a threat or something like they're going to leave it's kind of a big deal to do that. So like if you're going to do that, think really hard about doing it first. And there's the problem with like, you know, we have a lot of biases and as an investor over the years, I've really gotten to know that I do have biases and one of them is confidence bias. You know, we, our egos want to protect us and they make us think that we're kind of important. And sometimes we think we're, more important than we actually are and if you're asking someone for a raise you want to make sure that that person thinks you are just as important as you think you are before you say you know even ask for a raise right so yeah i would just say for business stuff don't make threats in negotiations just try to avoid it
0: (laughs) okay so i have your co-host Elliot who's on my show talking about how he started the China Tech Investor Podcast. So I'm not going to ask you that question. But what I want to ask you (laughs) is, how is the experience of doing the China Tech Investor Podcast and what have been the highlights of talking about investing into China Tech?
1: Well, the China Tech Investor Podcast, I mean, I really enjoy doing it. You know, I spend a lot of time reading, basically reading all day. Like I read, I take notes, I put numbers in Excel, try to make sense of them, read some more try to find some people to talk to, get some information, get some kind of feedback on some ideas. And so having the podcast and also writing kind of on my blog and things like that has helped me sort of pick up my head a little more and get some more human interaction into that daily loop, I think.
0: (laughs) Which comes to the main subject of the day because I hear from Elliot, you are the analytics and the numbers guy. So what we want to talk about is the fundamentals of technology companies in China. So I think the best way to start is actually to take on an investor hat because listening to the podcast you co-host with Elliot, you are always putting the numbers, the fundamentals, the metrics into thinking about things, which I actually enjoy. Thank you. This is called Analyze Asian Podcast, right? So you analyze. Yeah. So to start, when you put together a portfolio of technology companies, be it in China or anywhere else, as far as I know, you also invest all over the world. Yeah. What are the fundamentals and metrics that you look at before even considering investing in them?
1: Yeah, that's a really, really good question. Yeah, I do wanna say, I mean, I'm a co-host of a podcast called China Tech Investor. I don't only invest in tech companies or Chinese companies, right? I'm actually diversified across countries in asset classes. So that includes like stocks, bonds, cash, real estate, haven't really gotten into crypto yet but anyway you know we could do probably a whole podcast on investment strategy and i would love to do that you know i've i wrote some blog posts a few years ago about value investing and i kind of go into some of my process there but really there's kind of four parts there's you have to find the companies find the opportunities then you have to assess them Then you have to kind of review your assessments and then you have to manage your risk so after you put a trade on you know structuring the trade things like that when i look at metrics i mean i can use metrics to find companies right so you can find companies that are growing fast you can find some that are undervalued on a whole range of metrics you know ev ebitda PE, price to sales you know things like this but for me, what I do in my process, what I'd like to do is is eventually I have to understand the business. So I want to ask things like what are they selling? Who is the customer? What choices does the customer have? Why do they buy this product or service? Things like this, kind of who's the competition, who are the suppliers, you know, how do they purchase from the suppliers? You know, do they have a lot of choices when it comes to suppliers? Things like that and then from there that's where it kind of gets pretty interesting because all that stuff you're looking at is is the past and so you want to try to go project out into the future and see where things can go and when you're looking at all these metrics and you're trying to kind of figure out where things can go or maybe you have a model that you're kind of plugging numbers into and trying to work out a intrinsic value or something one thing i found that's really helpful is to look at things in terms of ranges, not just like pick a number and kind of run with it, but try to look at, you know, what's the maximum or the minimum or best worst kind of numbers and break it down into kind of probabilities along a spectrum. And then when you do all that, it's also got to fit some sort of story. (laughs) So yeah, that's kind of what the way I like to do it.
0: Just a follow-up question. Do you also take into considerations like the long-term trends and macroeconomic trends as well within your investment thesis?
1: Yes, I do. I mean, the term value investing means so many things now, but I used to say it's value investing with a a macro override. The point of that is that, you know, you can put your head down and like dig in, you know, bottom-up research, but things can happen on the macro level that can just blow you away. All the stuff you're doing can just get um, kind of overrun. And, you know, the macro things that I do look at are like, you know, I look at currencies, I look at interest, interest rates probably is the most important. Then you also want to look at kind of liquidity, lending, credit, growth, you know, these types of things.
0: So one interesting thing, Elliot and you have both talked about in your podcast but in different chunks of it but i think maybe it's good to sort of take a step back and look at it what are the major misconceptions about investing in china technology companies that you wish more people would understand
1: oh i mean i think the thing you hear all the time is you know it's chinese uber or chinese amazon or chinese i mean it's not really chinese facebook now facebook's trying to be like chinese wechat right (laughs) But, you know, you hear these kind of things and, and what kind of bothers me, it's I mean, saying that is fine. It's just saying that and then stopping and not doing any more research is a really bad idea. You know, the analogies themselves are not perfect, but if it helps you kind of get over a first hump of, you know, where do you bucket these kind of companies and how do you think about them, having an analogy can be helpful because you can compare and contrast. But if you're not doing the compare and contrasting, then having that analogy isn't really helpful. I'd say that's my kind of pet peeve. I'm sure I have more, but yeah.
0: (laughs) Do you think that, for example, people not even using the Chinese technology itself also have a problem? Like for example, most of the US investors probably wouldn't have used WeChat or Meituan Dienping or Didi in their daily life.
1: Oh yeah, it's totally foreign to them, right? It's like They can download WeChat, but if you're not in an ecosystem living like in the Chinese system here where you can use these things on a daily basis and see kind of the convenience factor, I mean, you're not going to get it. You're just not. So there is definitely an advantage being in China and using these things and experiencing them and kind of seeing what the potential is if it hasn't been identified yet. And I mean, I think WeChat's potential has been identified, but what else could it do? And, you know, there's always new things, so. Given so many
0: companies from China within the last one, two years are rushing to IPO, I mean, with the latest going to be Luckin Coffee, and I'm pretty sure Didi is in the midst of fouling it, are you worried that they are actually passing the buck from private to public investors, given the lack of profitability?
1: I mean, I'm not really worried, mainly because... As a public equity investor, I don't have a mandate to buy these companies. (laughs) If I did have a mandate where I had to buy every single Chinese tech company, then yeah, I might be a little worried. But I think for everyone else, we have a choice. So, you know, I'm not terribly worried. But it's funny because this private public thing, I mean, technically a public company could be like a venture-like entity. I mean, you could potentially have a company start up that raises capital by listing, you know, or filing and getting an OTC over the counter kind of listing. No company's doing that because I think the investors would prefer it to be private, right? Because you can have a little more control over the valuation. Once you're public, it's really up to the market, you know, unless you're doing a lot of share buybacks and can kind of support it. But presumably if you're not profitable, you don't have enough cash flow to support share buybacks. So It'd be difficult. But then I think at the end of the day, profitability is important. But if you have a CEO who can kind of tell a good story and attract enough investors and retain them, right? Because that's the key, then I think they can be okay. And, you know, I mean, famously, Jeff Bezos is one of these guys. And I guess most recently, Elon Musk is also one of these guys, right?
0: Yeah. So that comes to another point, right? does investing in China require a more sophisticated perspective, given that you've seen different narratives? For example, I've seen the film China Hustle, which those investors are really talking about tier three or four companies that really with no good fundamentals. And yet, in the movie, they try to bundle companies like Alibaba, which is a A-class type of tech company that you would invest in, right? With real fundamentals. Yeah, right, yeah. How do you break these narratives away and try to look in depth into investing in China?
1: Well, I mentioned on, on China Hustle, first of all, back in 2008 and nine, you know, I was going to those conferences, the people in, you know, in that movie, I, I've met a lot of them and talked to a lot of them. And actually, I was going to those conferences and I was looking for companies like I, I had this idea turned out to be not a great idea, but the idea was... These companies, they do these reverse mergers, RTOs, and they get public and they have zero analyst coverage. So I was like, okay, I'm going to find a good company that I like and I'll write a positive analyst report about it and make it, you know, freely available. But actually, I couldn't find one. (laughs) I couldn't find a company to write a positive report about. It was like almost all of them had some sort of red flags in their balance sheet or or something kind of fishy, kind of difficult to get your head around. And so, yeah, those were not great companies. Alibaba, on the other hand, I mean, it's a real business. They do have real cash flow. I think there are people that think that it doesn't. And, you know, I could be wrong. I definitely do not know everything. I am trying, you know, to figure things out as much as the next guy. And if someone does know something or if I say something that's wrong, I would very much love for someone to get in touch with me and tell me I'm wrong. Uh, (laughs) You know, preferably in a nice way. But if not, then I'd still prefer to be told that I'm wrong. Yeah, I think in terms of the sophistication perspective, I think the thing to take away from all those stories is that as an investor, no one's got your back, so to speak. You know, that's whether it's the finance industry, the SEC, the auditors, you know, sometimes even your broker is like selling your order flow. I mean, there's, there's a lot of ways to kind of trip up yourself. So you really have to do your homework and you have to manage your risk. Really, the onus is on the manager or the individual, right?
0: So does the quality of the tech companies listing in China, Hong Kong or US make any difference to how you view that company?
1: Well, quality definitely matters. If we try to define quality, you know, I'd say governance matters. Having, I mean, I just said that auditors don't have your back, but having a good auditor that's pushing back on the company. I worked at a US listed company, so I've experienced that myself. You know, and accounting standards matter. So all these things, they help doesn't mean that you can rely on them 100%. But if they're not there, then you got to kind of wonder a little bit. You got to be a little more careful, right?
0: And of course, now with Hong Kong going into dual class shares, and in the same way, it's going to compete with the US. And similarly, I just heard that Silicon Valley is now setting up their own stock exchange. Right. So the stock exchange side is going to be having a lot more competition. Do you see that becoming more and more nuanced for tech companies, depending on where they want to list?
1: Yeah, no, this is a really important thing. Having dual class listing shares can be great. I think the original purpose for doing this like way back when it it was first done is it's like, this is a founder who really cares about the company and has a vision and we don't want to, you know, have him be replaced somehow. So we want to have this dual class listing. It's really one class has one vote and then another class has a lot more votes. So it's just like a difference in voting control whereas like, you know, if they pay out dividends, everyone gets the same dividend. And so, you know, that's kind of funny because Originally, this was about it being like a special founder, you know, someone with real special knowledge, special kind of vision or something. But now it's kind of like everyone's doing it. So (laughs) it's not that special anymore. But it's, you know, if you're a company and you're looking to raise capital and, you know, you keep selling shares, keep selling shares and you get diluted and maybe one of the ways for VC funds to kind of keep you in the game and keep you motivated is to say, look, you're going to get control. You know, we have more ownership. Yes, but you have more votes. And so maybe that's kind of a trade-off that's kind of going on. I wouldn't be surprised if that's the case, but so anyway, having dual class listing in Hong Kong and potentially maybe, maybe China will do it. You know, I think it's good to have options, right? And at the end of the day, I mean, another kind of sad thing is that a lot of the Chinese equity retail investors, they don't have access to some of the best companies that China's created. You know, the, these big tech companies, I mean, they're listed overseas and it's kind of too bad that they don't get access, right?
0: Mm. So in the next part of the questions I'm going to ask you is going to be interesting. But before that, I'm going to throw a disclaimer. So whatever James and I discuss here are not constituted as investor advice. If you want to invest in something, please go to actual financial advisory or people who are trained in it and please do your homework, okay? We are not going to be responsible for your mistakes. So this is where the fun part comes. You have been talking about these different subjects and I thought I would just want to have this consolidated set of insights into one place. So I want to start off by talking about the e-commerce companies that will include Alibaba, uh, Qingdong, or people called JD, and Ping Duoduo. How are they different and how do you assess whether these companies are successful or are there any current issues that you are starting to wave a red flag as you look into these companies?
1: Okay, so... If I'm going to look at these three companies, first of all, I think maybe just start at the market cap, right? Because they're very different companies. Alibaba is like $460 billion. JD is about $40 billion. And Pinduoduo is about $24 billion. That's all roughly speaking. I mean, another disclaimer is numbers may be off here. So check the numbers yourself as as well. <laughs> and then kind of looking at the sales, I mean, look, Alibaba does in trailing 12 months up to December 31st, $52 billion in sales. JD to March 31st, they announced last week, is $71.9 billion. These are all dollars. Pinduoduo is $1.9 billion. So just looking at a very rudimentary price-to-sales metric here, that's Alibaba's at 8.8, JD's at 0.5, and Pinduoduo does at 12.6. So, you know, what's going on here? You already see there's like a very big difference between Alibaba and JD, right? Why is JD so much smaller? And it's because JD, they own inventory and they sell it, whereas Alibaba does not, right? Alibaba is more like a marketplace where merchants come on like sellers can come on and create a store on Taobao or something like that. Or brands can create something on T mall or actually retailers can create their own like virtual retail shop on T mall. And they have other things as well, but they sell, you know, they sell advertising, they sell kind of services to create those shops and things like that. And then JD, you know, they have inventory. They also have third party sellers, merchants, but they also have first-party selling. So when you're selling e-commerce, you know the margins are, are just a lot lower, but their sales are a lot higher, right? So that's why their sales are above their market cap. Whereas Pinduoduo, it's kind of more similar, I guess, to Alibaba in that sense, is that it's a marketplace. There's merchants that come on. Ideally, I think Colin Huang, the founder, kind of the vision is that you know, these merchants are factories and you kind of go direct from factory to the consumer through Pinduoduo's platform. And so, yeah, in terms of red flags, yeah, I personally think, I mean, people disagree with me. And if you do disagree with me, please talk to me because I would like to be convinced otherwise. But I think there's some red flags at Pinduoduo. You know, when you first look at it, it looks amazing. Like metrics-wise, it's kind of an incredible situation. You know, the revenue growth is like 600. I mean, using the Bloomberg numbers here, like 650% year over year. That's just incredible. I mean, just downright amazing. And then you look at the gross margin. it's It's over 75%. That's like also very, very, everything's looking great. But then once you go below gross margin... Things get a little less attractive. You know, marketing expense is actually higher than sales, which is kind of, I think, unsustainable. But actually, Colin Huang on on earnings calls has said that, you know, he views marketing expense as an investment, which is kind of interesting. If it's an investment, and I have a kind of another sort of belief, and I, you know, that my could be changed. But my belief is that, you know, when we use this customer acquisition cost thing, it's not a one-time cost. It's most likely a recurring cost, unless there's some stickiness or there's some lock-in that the customer gets. And especially for e-commerce in China, switching costs are incredibly low, okay? This is something that U.S., investors probably don't realize because they haven't really experienced mobile payments to the degree that it's been adopted in China. Because of mobile payments, you can move all around, use all these different e-commerce platforms. You you really don't get the kind of lock-in that you would get in, say, you know, like an Amazon with Amazon Prime or something like that, right? And so if you're going to be long this company, you got to get comfortable, long dua. you got to get comfortable with a lot of things. You got to get comfortable with that marketing expense as investment. You got to be also comfortable that they don't have a CFO. And their VP of finance just left after they filed their 20F. And their VP of finance was the top finance guy. Because there was no CFO, he was the guy. And he hasn't been immediately replaced. And I think Colin on the conference call said that, you know, the finance team, I'm trying to remember it, I don't have it in front of me, so maybe double check if anyone's gonna try to quote me on this, <laughs> but he said the finance team is very strong, it's solid, I think was the word he used, and they don't need kind of a lead manager they can kind of make do without while they seek to fill the role. So I, I can go into JD as well, but if you have any questions on Pinduoduo,
0: I though is called the Costco plus Disney. Maybe they're spinning the right fairy tale for themselves. But JD is actually behaves a lot more like Amazon as compared to Alibaba, even though comparisons are made. Can you talk a little bit more about JD?
1: Yeah, yeah. So JD, so they actually they compared themselves to Amazon in their investor presentation last week, and it kind of bothered me a little bit because, you know, what they did is they took the kind of Kager. Of their revenue growth, Kager compounded annual growth rate of their revenue growth. And for Amazon, they took out some things out of Amazon's revenue. So they didn't use the total Amazon revenue. And then for JD, which has some services which are kind of similar to Amazon, they didn't take those out. They left them in when they calculated theirs. Now, this isn't like a SEC sort of gap accounting sort of covered thing. This is just an investor presentation. They can do whatever they want. That didn't make me feel incredibly positive. You know, like, I like companies, I like managements that are open and aren't trying to obfuscate things. And they're open and kind of wear their, you know, scars or whatever, you know, kind of on their sleeve. And that shows me that they're, you know, either aware of the issues and that they're more likely, if they're aware of the issues, they're more likely to be thinking about ways to address them, right? So JD, though, besides that, I do like it. But if you're going to go into JD, I'd say, you know, when you look at companies, you want to try to identify what the key linchpin things are. And I I think with JD, it's kind of how this logistics push or retail as a service that they're doing is going to work out. I'm pretty optimistic that it will work out, but that doesn't mean there's no execution risk, right? So, you know, I want it to work out. I think it'd be very good, but, you know, you got to also look at, okay, well, if it does work out, you know, what's the absolute uh, most optimistic case? So what they're trying to do is they're trying to get more retailers to get onto their platform and use their infrastructure, right? So Amazon has a similar infrastructure thing where you can do fulfillment by Amazon. You don't need to store anything in a warehouse. Amazon does it for you. They do the shipping, the boxing, packaging, everything, right? It's very convenient. But it costs something, right? That eats into your margin, but you don't have to deal with the headache of doing it. So there's a trade-off. But that's actually not the only trade-off. The other trade-off that's sort of starting to be talked about a little bit is that if Amazon's a retailer and you're a merchant on their platform as a retailer, you're kind of competing with your service provider, right? You don't have like a completely agnostic service provider, right? So the great thing is for Amazon and for JD is that they get access to all of the data. And I don't just mean like, oh, data. I mean, like they know what's being sold They know if the factories are shipping directly to their logistics facilities, they might even know where these things are being made. So it might be very easy for them to create their own product that is exactly the same as that product that is suddenly becoming really, really popular. And maybe they can have like a super high, you know, this is now I'm kind of speculating. I have zero evidence of this, but if I was a enterprising young person at these companies, you know, maybe it's a good idea to set up a very high-end team that goes and tries to find high-margin products that are selling really well and replicate them and sell them on the platform too, right? I mean, they're really popular. Maybe, you know, maybe there'll be supply constraints, you know, there's lots of reasons you can come up with to do this, but you know, at the end of the day, the customer might not have any other options right? I mean, the merchant customer. And for Amazon, it's clearly the leader, right? I mean, a lot of product searches start on Amazon. So you're kind of getting to a control of demand sort of situation. That's really hard to compete with and it'll drive more supply to them. So maybe merchants will will get over this or maybe overlook this kind of non-agnostic infrastructure provider type of situation. So I want to come
0: to a company that hasn't gone public yet. They just filed an IPO, and that's Luckin Coffee. And I like that episode that you did with Michael Norris. What are your thoughts on Luckin Coffee, and what is the bull or the bear case for this company?
1: Well, thank you for the comments about the episode, Michael Norris. I liked it too. That was a lot of fun. So Luckin, on that episode, I actually talked about some numbers that I did. After that, I was, you know, I went over my numbers and I actually made some mistakes which does happen, folks. <laughs> but <laughs> yeah, so they weren't like big mistakes, but Luckin's numbers are pretty funny. You know, if you read what they call these things, they have a number called cumulative transacting customers. It's like all the customers who've ever bought anything from them ever. And so it just keeps adding up. And of course, as they acquire new customers, it, it goes up. But if they don't acquire new customers, it doesn't. It's a metric of basically new transacting customers. So Q1 of this year, they added about 4.3 million. And that compares to Q4 of last year, you know, month to month. Q4 of last year, they added 6.5 million. So that was a little bit of a decline. So it's like the second derivative, right? Mm. But anyway, I also looked into some more interesting stuff is that These guys are growing like crazy fast. So I calculated their average newly opened stores per day. And in Q4, the average number of stores they opened per day during Q4 was 10.3, which is just insane. If you think about like having a team of people, just try to imagine doing that. It's, it's incredible. Bravo to those guys. Uh, but then in Q1, that dropped down to 4.2, and it's kind of, I don't know. We'll see how it goes. They have a interesting, you know, the way they grow is they, you know, what they say in their filing, their F1, is that they start with delivery kitchens, and then they kind of see where the hot zones are, and then they add pickup stores, you know, over time. But it's hard to really know How much they do that seems like they used to do that. I don't know how much they still do that. But because delivery kitchens, actually, they've been closing more than they've been adding. And it's gone from Q1 of 2018. It was about 66% of all their stores were delivery kitchens. And now it's just 4% as of Q1 2019. So that's a big, big, big drop, yeah. But they've also added a lot of other stores, the pickup stores, so...
0: I think one thing that's very interesting in that conversation and it inspired me to actually come up with this argument that I have been having for a long, long time is that all these new sharing economy companies, what value that they really come to is the booking engine, the matchmaking engine, for example, Uber's booking engine, Airbnb booking engine and escrow, they actually have economies of scale. But the problem is that the physical assets don't. And I think in that conversation you have with Michael Norris, you talk about blitzscaling on real assets. And I think this is where it really helped me to realize that actually what these sharing economy companies do is recalibrating the value of those physical assets. And for something like right hailing, which we're going to come to later, is that there is no economies of scale because there's regional fragmentation of fleets. So there's limits to how much you can grow with right hailing, and at some point, once the supply becomes infinite, it's impossible to have economies of scale. And this is what's happening to Uber in Asia. That's why they can never get it back, even if they decided to at some point. So I think you want to talk about that a little bit more?
1: Yes. So I wrote a blog post about this called Atoms versus Electrons, and how you can have what the difference is between an electron type of asset or business model or business, to one that's like an atom and that's just like one's digital and one's physical a booking engine is you know you have nodes in a network and you're connecting them right you have a two-sided network and you're connecting them based on you know gps coordinates that are built into the phone that get uploaded to the server and then you can kind of triangulate pretty quickly i'm just guessing how this is done I, you know i really don't know but I think it's something like that. And then beyond that, just that layer itself is a great piece of infrastructure. Like that's a service. Now, when you're owning the driver, which Uber sort of is because they pay the driver, right? And it's like they collect the payment and they pay the driver. So they kind of own it. But yeah, it's like what you said, like the driver is not going to magically be wherever in the world they have the most demand. You know, so wherever the most demand is, there's going to be a supply constraint. Right. If there's a demand spike now, they can maybe use sort of pricing to help get more drivers to turn on, you know, at those key times. And maybe over time they can kind of get better at it. This is what they say. I don't know. You know, I also think there's a price problem Because what I think these ride hailing companies did is I think they created this technology, which was you download an app, you put it on your phone, you get in your car, you take a photo of your driver's license, and you become a driver. And that takes 10 minutes, 30 minutes, I mean, it's a lot faster than becoming a taxi driver or becoming a private car driver, which are kind of what they are.
0: But isn't that the point of it? Is that that's why there is no economies of scale if you really dig deeper into them because they are actually subverting what is called the regulatory tax. At some point, regulation that's used to regulate taxi companies or hotels will come back to bite them.
1: Well, you know, the interesting thing about this is, you know, why do we have regulation? One reason is for safety, right? And we've seen, you know, all the things that happen to passengers in some of these cars, like in China, there were murders in the U.S., I think there was a murder, at least one, maybe more. And guess what? We didn't get regulation. So safety is maybe not the first reason for regulation. Actually, my guess, regulation is really important. Once you have a dominant player, that's when they want regulation because regulation helps limit supply. Once you limit supply, guess what you can do? you can increase prices. Now, the problem that these guys have, and the reason why they've had to burn so much money, is because they did not limit supply. They actually took the limits off of supply. And that drives price down, right? This is very simple economics, supply and demand curve stuff. Now, their story is like, oh, we're going to finally make money when we get rid of drivers. And that's probably true. But What's going to be the price that people are willing to pay? Like, are they going to be able to charge the same price when you have a driver for when the driver's gone? And I'm going to go on a limb here? I don't think so. But I also think that's pretty far down the road. You know, the other problem is that the customer, the passenger in the car, like they're standing there on the side of the street. They could call a cab or they can hail a cab or they can do Uber on their phone or if they're in a metropolis, you know, they can get on a subway or they can get on a bus. There's other options for them to do. Now there's, you know, scooters and bikes and things like that. And Lyft, you know, has scooters and bikes and and actually the funny thing is the supply goes up, the price that the supply gets goes down. And Lyft has sort of identified this because they're trying to get at The cost constraints on the supply side. So the drivers, what are their costs of driving, right? They have insurance. Lyft is like crazy excited about insurance. They have maintenance. Now Lyft has their own like maintenance locations and stuff like this. Uber might as well. I mean, I haven't read the entire S1 yet. I think you have, right? (laughs) Mm. (laughs) I don't know if Uber has the same thing, but. Yeah. So that comes to
0: my question for Uber and Lyft, right? Can they be sustainable in the long term? And that will have implications for Didi in China and Grab in Southeast Asia and Ola Caps in India, because these guys will have to go IPO at some point. So what does that mean Yeah, the entire set of companies? Because these guys are having mega valuations that are unheard of.
1: So that's the constraint. If you're like, you know, can these guys make it? I mean, I think the companies will survive can they make it under the assumptions that their valuations are kind of inherently pushing onto them that is where i doubt if i had to recreate a world for these drivers or for this ecosystem I would just create like a little tiny infrastructure layer, which is basically that booking engine, you know, taking GPS coordinates from two phones and uploading them every, you know, few seconds to a database that's huge and massive and constantly trying to select on nearness and triangulate, right? But then also take into account like the maps and the directions of the, you know, where they're going so they don't have to do massive U turns. Anyway. I would create a little infrastructure layer and I would charge, you know, kind of like payment processing sort of thing. And I would allow any company to be on the platform or something like that. And that's probably doable. You know, if someone wants to make that, call me. (laughs) But if I had to think, what can these companies do? I think there's always going to be a market for like a high end service. You know, you have a high end luxury car where there's like a really polite driver who's got you know snacks and stuff maybe there's a tv maybe there's wi-fi maybe there's you know these things that you're not going to get these comforts that you don't get when you ride public transportation or a taxi but then taxis are going to get those things too and public transportation's already starting to get wi-fi in some places so you know Whatever it is, it's going to be good for the consumer. I'm pretty sure of that. I'm not sure if it's going to be great for these companies' investors to support the valuation.
0: I just only have one last question before we go to the closing, and that's the company that I really like, which is Tencent. Yeah. I'm very curious to know, and I just wanted your opinion on this. Does Tencent's success depend on government regulatory bodies now that they don't approve a lot of games very quickly anymore? Or are there any things that we should be looking forward from Tencent that we are not observing?
1: So if I was Tencent, right, if the new reality is that less games get approved, then, you know, then maybe you have to have less games launched and more kind of blockbuster type of productions, right? And so actually what that means, and I, I feel for the the guys that make the games, but they probably don't need as many developers making the games. So there's probably a cost change there, right? But, you know, in general, just like a general comment about regulatory bodies in China, I think, yes, regulatory bodies are very important to a lot of businesses, whether you're a small peer-to-peer kind of platform or a large tech player or large insurance company or an airline or conglomerate or something like that. I mean, I think there's also kind of the content regulations I think what they've done with PUBG, you know, like just in the groups I'm in and kind of feedback I'm hearing, it sounds like it's actually doing pretty well and people like it. And, you know, there was some news out that they made 14 million in sales on the iOS app store. So that's, you know, not taking into account Android if they're on Android, but in three days, which is pretty amazing. I don't think they'll hit that run rate for the whole year. That would be really incredible if they could. It'll drop down probably, but that's still a very good sign. So I think Tencent is, I mean, I think it's probably my favorite of the China tech companies. That's right. Yeah.
0: I think a lot of people underestimated how good are they. and They are actually a very good content distributor, whether it's games, books, right, music, videos. And I think people misunderstood the company. They keep thinking, they keep trying to compare it as a messaging app. I think they're far more than that.
1: Oh yeah. The messaging app is like a small thing. It's not even a big part of their revenue still. So the runway for that is potentially massive. I don't think they're going to monetize it in the same way that Facebook has monetized Facebook and Instagram. I don't think they're going to do that. I think that's the right decision, but... Yeah, no, they have a huge runway. I mean, they're involved in payments, although that's, they said on their last earnings call, the payments, it looks good. I mean, it's like a duopoly, right, in mobile payments, which is a great thing to have. But they still have bank charges, and they still have to pay the bank charges, and they're not pushing the bank charges onto the customer that much yet. They are doing it a bit on the merchant side And they still have to do a lot of advertising, and there's still a lot of, like, on the ground, you know, getting every merchant everywhere on their platform. That's where they're kind of in the grassroots front lines competing with Alipay. But they're both doing it. I mean, just a few days ago, first time I've ever seen this, they now have Alipay and WeChat pay on tolls in China. So you can pay the toll of the highway, and you can scan your QR code and pay it. And that's like the last shoe to drop, right? That's like, you're talking about very, very large companies that control toll roads and they are not fast movers, right? And they finally did it. And it, it's just a sign that, you know, it's not going away. It's definitely not going away.
0: So if I ever ask you to come and just do one episode on Tencent, forget about the business model, but just talk about the financial fundamentals into it, will you be up for it?
1: oh totally totally
0: okay we'll get that reserved so james many thanks yeah. for coming on the show and closing quickly can you recommend a book podcast anything that made an impact to your work and personal life
1: yeah recently you know michael lewis is a really great writer storyteller he wrote the big short liars poker money ball uh he's got a podcast that's really awesome which is, now I'm blanking on the name. Against the Rules. Against the Rules, that's right. So good. Yeah, that's good. For books-wise, I mean, one book that I read as a kid that kind of made an impact to me is one by Cahill Gibran called The Prophet, and I thought that was really good. Right now, I mean, once I say the name of the book, anyone who's listening to the podcast and knows the book will recognize it because it's kind of creeping into my thoughts, but this book called The Myth of Capitalism by Jonathan Tepper and Denise Hearn. And that's a great, great book. Kind of goes into the anti-competitive nature of so many industries in the U.S. and how it's kind of harming innovation. It's harming a lot of things. It's complicating things a lot. And I do think kind of like a natural order of things, you know, like founders and every business person would prefer I would think, to be a monopolist, right? <laughs> anyway, so they identify these problems and they, I also identify some solutions. And it's done in a nonpartisan way and really, really great.
0: So how did my audience find you?
1: Okay, so you can hear me on the China Tech Investor Podcast. And our tagline is, we seek truth from facts on Chinese tech stocks. And you can also follow me on Twitter, that's James X. On Twitter and then on LinkedIn, I'm um, just in forward slash James Hall. Um, and then I have a blog at uh, longhedge.wordpress.com.
0: And you can Google me at Bernard Leung. And this podcast is co produced by Carol Inn and myself. You can find us everywhere, including Spotify, Himalaya, iTunes, and SoundCloud and Stitcher. So give us your great feedback. And this is one episode away from episode 300. So we're going to be going in to talk about things and what have you been going through and what are some of the fun things that we're going to be doing soon. So James, many thanks for coming on the podcast and I look forward to speak to you soon.
1: Yes, thank you very much for having me. Thanks, Bernard.